politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow patriots and forgotten American taxpayers to day two of zombie apocalypse week here at Conservative Review. It is March 17th, Tuesday. And who is manning the fort? Who is guarding the gate? The gate of liberty, the gate of public safety, prosperity. Who is calling the balls and strikes on what we should and should not do? I don't know, but we need to create that movement. Um, you know, as forgotten American taxpayers, who is looking out for what caused this problem? What is making our response to it more difficult? How to pursue it with the least restrictive constraints on our liberties? And how to put in long-term policies to address this in its direct way? Nobody. You know, I was talking last night with our steering committee, our group of uh, listeners that are helping put together a Facebook fan page. Hopefully we should have it up within the week. Um, and uh, it will be it will be our little sanctuary. To share ideas, to promote activism. And I was mentioning how eerie it was that our political scene last night looked kind of like our streets today. It was a ghost town. Democrats are what I find amazing is that they have a vision every single day of what they want to do. So when something happens in the news and particularly something as earth shattering as this, they have ready made solutions to go before even defining the scope and cause and nature of the problem. And they flood the zone with it, and it's always the same things. More welfare spending, more debt, more immigration, and now more jailbreak. We'll get to that. And yet Republicans, they don't have an agenda on any day, certainly in a vital time like now. And they're out there. They passed $8.3 billion in spending. They're passing another, you know, hundreds of billions in porculus. And before the Senate even passes the second bill, they're already talking about Trump, Mnuchin. Again, it's all bipartisan. There's one party in Washington discussing an $850 billion package of bailouts for airlines and who knows what else. And we're all sitting and saying, well, wait a minute, is this necessary? Is it necessary to do this immediately? What about addressing healthcare regulations that are harming our ability to deal with this? What about addressing the malfeasance that caused us not to flatten the curve when it mattered? In December and January. Whereas we talked about yesterday, I don't know if it's true today, but certainly as of two days ago, we were still bringing in refugees and asylees, bogus asylees at our border. Where is the mechanism in place to deal with that? Where is the mechanism in place to deal with the CDC and the NIH? The fact that we have so much baseline regular spending that is wasted on things government shouldn't be doing and then suddenly they seem to be oh we need more money for what 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 is exclusively the province of government remember we need government for the extraordinary things military border national security public health crisis emergencies but we have emergency level spending 365 days a year every year for garbage and then suddenly all oh, we're out of money well Okay, if we're at least, here's my point, and I'm going to try to write an article on this, maybe a list of 10 things conservatives should demand in return for massive bailouts, because they're going to do it. There's no way we could stop that. I could talk against it, stupid, but they're going to do it. But at least let's get stuff in return. If we have time, I want to talk about some of those things today. We're going to have Chip Roy on, Congressman Chip Roy on uh, later today. Um, maybe we'll get to it tomorrow. But what was eerie is it used to be we have to pass a bill to find out what's in it. Now we have to pass a bill to even write it. They didn't even write the bill. They had to pass 80 pages of technical corrections to an already bad bill. We didn't know what was going to be in it. And nobody was guarding the gate. 
So the Senate's in session, but the House was off. The House already passed it. They're hoping the Senate just passes it without any questions and then moves on to the third bailout package. And Louis Gohmert, Congressman Louis Gohmert, he's in far eastern Texas. He drove in middle of the night on Sunday night to Dallas to get a morning flight to D.C. so he could be the one man to object to unanimous consent. They were going to pass changes that nobody it was they weren't even written they literally weren't written they were going to vote on something that wasn't written and he was like wait a minute i need to know and still it's kind of murky i don't have text of the bill maybe it is out there the final bill but my understanding is he secured the following you know uh, concessions he's not happy with it and he voted against the bill but it was enough that once it passed, he relinquished his unanimous consent. And I understand it. I mean, look, Trump pressured him. McCarthy, by the way, I could tell you Kevin McCarthy is controlling this whole thing. Trump, as you saw, he said, maybe the Senate will make it better. Again, Trump is hands off. Whatever you guys send me, if you send me a conservative bill, I'll sign it. If you send me a liberal bill, I'll sign it. That is the lesson we need to understand. So my understanding is they put in tax credits that they were already going to have in there. So, you know, the concern was you're leaving the small businesses out to dry. Right? You're leaving them out to dry. So, they tried to make it more comprehensive. So the tax credits wouldn't just offset the 6.2% of Social Security payroll, but also the 1.5% of Medicare tax. Um, the tax credits were originally almost for most people taking off for paid leave because they're forcing them to have paid leave. So they'll be reimbursed with tax credits. Only They only have to uh, supply or pay for paid leave if they're home due to um, children under 18 needing to be cared for. Other qualifying certain circumstances were tightened. I'm not sure there might be some other provisions, but but he he tried to you know get it a little bit better for small business. And look, look, I understand that if we're going to have government edicts or close to edicts or strongly encourage and shaming people to shut down and having kids off of school. So a certain amount, we are going to have to shell out cash to people and businesses on a certain level. I understand that. But what we need to do is avoid the massive bailouts. And what we also need to do is at some point, you got to balance your, your, your checkbook. So if, if you feel now is an unprecedented, unprecedented crisis, then you need to A, find ways to at least pay for some of it, find ways to deal with this in the long run, and find ways to actually deal with what we've been talking about the last few days, the 800-pound gorillas in the room, with China's control of the medical supply chain, China's malfeasance on the, on the geopolitical scene that needs to be sanctioned and deterred. We need a permanent provision in law mandating shutoff of travel when this stuff starts, when the government first is aware of it. So that way we don't need, we're like, oh, we're going to have so much pain from shutting off travel. Well, now we're going to have pain from shutting down internal travel. And again, we need to guard the gates that no, we will not take this to the point of Italy and Spain where we have a curfew of police patrolling the streets and you literally cannot leave your house except maybe once a day to go to the store or something, whatever they have in there. No, no, I'm sorry. We are not going to that. I will not allow people that sat here and had flights from China and from Italy and from Iran bringing this in and suddenly telling us, well, Daniel, now we just got to shut down all liberty. No, go to hell. And indeed, this guy Trevor Bedford put out, he's a scientist, he put out on Twitter yesterday something very interesting. Some of you have seen me retweet this. A small update. They had the um, epidemiology reports from... Uh, what is this? Um, I think CDC was involved as well as um, 
what is this called? The Seattle Flu Study, a couple of organizations. So basically, they studied the genes, the genetic composition of the viruses in a certain sample of people. And basically, through sequencing of the code, they were able to see which infections are connected to which other ones. Thanks to sequencing by UW uh, Virology, CDC Gov, and Seattle Flu Study, uh, we have genome, uh, where is this? We have, yeah, they, they found the genes. Where is this? Yeah, for, for 39 viruses sampled from Washington. 35 of the 39 in the sample fell into a single um, genetic cluster indicating a single January introduction from China and subsequent local spread. 90% of the sample from the hardest hit state, which accounts for two-thirds of the fatalities, was, at, was from an introduction from China after we had called for a shutoff and long after our government knew about it. The other four viruses appear as one-off introductions of either immediate travel cases or as recent steps in a newly arrived transmission chain. Given genetic proximity, these appear to be related to viruses from Europe and Iran. Thus, from, for Washington State, new introductions from outside the U.S. appear to be driving many fewer new infections than local transmission. Yeah, in other words, it started that way. Now it's local, but that, that's the point. That, that's how we would have flattened the curve. Other states have fewer recently sequenced viruses. New York has two with one direct travel history to Iran. We all know that that really started a lot of it in New York City. San Diego was Europe, they say, probably the Netherlands. I mean, Iran, we, we th think about this, folks. We were supposed to have a travel ban anyway because of national security from Iran, yet it, did, it was a travel ban in name only. What a joke. All because of lower courts violating Trump v. Hawaii. I mean, th think about the extraordinary powers that even a dinky mayor now has to stem a public health crisis. Yet we were told forever that we couldn't even, the president couldn't use power that he had regularly and backed up by 150 years of case law to just keep out aliens who don't have a right to be here. Yet no one questions anything government does, which most of it I agree with once it's gotten this bad, but questions it at all to restrict the core movement and literally First Amendment unalienable rights of American citizens born here, you know, automatically here of by birthright, by nature. Without question, I mean, at least we should emerge from this with a full understanding from Congress, from our body politic, that you better believe the president has authority to prevent aliens who have never come here from coming here when he feels it's in the national interest, if we feel we could shut down our entire internal country because of the national interest. And again, I, I agree. I've said this long ago. The Ogden Supreme Court case in 1824 was really the earliest on this, but it was obvious that you know, we, we have um, uh, very strong, there are very strong powers for our government in times of a, of a healthcare emergency to quarantine. Because again, you know, government needs to protect us and leave hands off of us. But there are times they need to be strong because otherwise you don't have liberty. Hence borders, hence crime. I'm very big on that. So this is a similar thing. But I will just point out that if you look historically, most of what we've done is directly targeting those that have or have been exposed to the virus directly, not broad shutdowns. OK, I mean, that's more like what what Singapore did. And with much more success, they shut off travel very early. And they were very, very strict on quarantining. But they did not have the degree of severity of, of just across the board restrictions that we're putting into place now. They're here. Let's just shut it down at this point, flatten the curve. 
But I, I, I we adamantly I, I we will. There is no need for a curfew. If it's gotten this bad already and whatever, it's going to be that bad. Pray to God. Having a curfew is not going to, you know, stop, stop deaths at that point. I refuse to play into that. You can't have it both ways. You can't have flights directly by foreign nationals who don't even have a right to be here. Weeks, months into the crisis, refugee resettlement, at least through Friday, maybe is still going on. I have to verify that. Or our press office still hasn't gotten back to me on that as of this recording. And then now you're going to say we're going to talk about curfew. Are you kidding me? So, again, we have to achieve the right balance of personal liberty, economic prosperity and public safety. That's obvious. But um, but again, let's achieve long term enduring solutions. How about reorient reorienting our base funding towards emergencies, our base funding of NIH and CDC? Not for fighting obesity and smoking. That's the job of a government. That's the thing. Our government does everything it shouldn't do. Like, oh, now we have an emergency. Look, we need more money. More bailouts. And of course, never address the issue. Then, of course, you have Democrats, as I wrote in my article this morning. So we have welfare, we have debt, we have immigration. Jailbreak. You can't make this stuff up. I mean, you got to marvel. You got to love how Democrats believe in their cause and they are willing to use a crisis to promote any and every one of their disidentum, everything they want to do. And jailbreak is one of them. Notice we never had this notion that, oh, we're worried about the spread of viruses in prison, so we have to stop arresting people. We have to let people out of jail. We never had that before during SARS, during uh, swine flu. You know why? Because that predated the jailbreak movement. In other words, it wasn't an organic concern born out of the virus. It was a pre-existing political agenda that they trot out as a solution in pursuit of a problem. The reality is, as you well know, it's ridiculous to assert that jails are at risk because jails are the best place around. Because the, the jails are what government probably wants to do to all of us, but rightfully is doing there, where they have fully full control over your liberty. They are monitoring everyone. They've restricted all visits. And anyone who's sick is obviously being dealt with and being quarantined. So you don't let them out. That's an ideal situation. Again, that's what government ultimately is doing to, to everyone in, um, in Europe. Some European countries, we don't want that to be done. But the criminals, I mean, are we really going to have a situation, really, where government is essentially locking us in our homes and then only criminals will be out free to steal cars in Baltimore? Because that's what's going to happen. Again, they're telling them, imagine if you put out, we, we don't want to lock you up because we're scared of spreading viruses in jail. Not only are you going to let them out, but I mean, gee, what do you think they're going to do with all the stores closed? A few people on the streets to, to, you know, witnesses. Heck, you're going to have to stay in your house, not because of the virus, because of the criminals. You're not going to only need to stop up, stock up on toilet paper. You'll have to stock up. On ammo, which people already are, obviously. But can you imagine that? They have their agenda on that, and yet Republicans don't even have an agenda on reorienting our spending priorities, on at least offsetting some of the costs with cuts to foreign aid. Or dealing with all the regulations on health care. Now is the perfect time. I, I want to get Chip Roy on, on the show to get his, his view on this. But one great point put out by our, our friends at the American Association of Physicians and Surgeons, the free market healthcare group. One of the most onerous yet forgotten provisions of Obamacare was banning physician owned hospitals that along with numerous other provisions has created a crisis 
that's worse than the crisis in health insurance, but in the delivery of health care. And that is the mergers and acquisitions and monopolies of big health care provider conglomerates buying up and merging all the hospitals. Remember, that happened after Obamacare, not before. That has created a monopoly that has increased prices has created a shortage. That's the biggest concern we're being told of everything is the potential, the reason why we can't afford to have people out, even if you know the fatalities might not be as bad as some are making out to be, is, is people will need to be hospitalized, a certain percentage, especially the elderly, and we're not going to have enough hospital beds. The, and this is a big problem in rural areas. There's a rural hospital so- shortage. I, I, I know we had our buddy um, Keith uh, Smith from the Oklahoma Surgery Center on the show, we should probably have him back. Um, he has a free market clinic that is, you know, world famed in, in what they do. And he talked about the severity of this provision. Now is the perfect time to bring that out. Everyone's clever. Oh my gosh, we're, we're going to die. I mean, there's nothing more volatile than this. Okay, everyone admits this is everything. There is nothing that's going to get a greater fear than the fear of dying from an epidemic. Democrats are playing off of that for debt bailouts, welfare, jailbreak, and even immigration. They're doing the same thing with ICE. The ACLU has a lawsuit to let, to, to let go people from ICE detention, criminal aliens. They think of everything. Why don't we think of the things that actually led to it and harm our ability to respond to it? Again, immigration, Chinese foreign policy, travel from China, 400,000 Chinese foreign students, the brain drain and the brain gain to China, the stealing of our trade that uh, of our trade secrets through the foreign education, foreign worker pipeline. Our supply chain. And all of the regulations on healthcare that create a monopoly and shortages. See, a lot of my friends are like busy defending America from Europe. Well, you see, this is what socialized medicine is like in Italy as opposed to America. Well, maybe in some ways we're better off, but we don't have free markets here. The last time I checked, we had 50 years worth of anti-market and then culminating with Obamacare. Why should we as conservatives own it as ours? No, we need to use this as an opportunity to push back against Obamacare and other provisions. And at least if we're not going to touch the insurance provisions, at least the health care supply side regulatory issues, we should have a whole list of them. But there's no intuition. Not from the White House, not from Republicans in the Senate, not from Republicans in the House to do anything, not from think tanks. Look, I'm a 35 year old random guy. I don't have the answers to everything. I study things a lot. I study as much public policy as I can to give you the most educated and informed and up to date analysis and information. But I need to I need help here. This is why I want to create this Facebook page for us to meet and those of you who have expertise in various fields, let's share and and disseminate ideas. I have never seen such a crisis of a dearth of initiative, of ideas, of agenda from anyone on the so-called right. They just orbit around Nancy Pelosi. And Trump is just drinking out of that trough through the conduit of Kevin McCarthy. So that's where we are with that. But I want to get to our guest. So folks, as I mentioned here at the top of the hour, There was one brave Texas congressman that drove back early in the morning to get a flight Monday to at least try to understand what's in this bailout bill to make it a little better for small businesses, um, to not repeat some of the mistakes we made after 9-11 of using a crisis to push bad governance. And that was Louis Gomer. I want to have him on uh, sometime this week. We're going to get him back on, but we're going to have another terrific congressman on. Chip Roy, you guys already know Chip from uh, District 21, a little bit further in the central part of the state. Um, he has also been speaking out, trying to give a vision of what we should and shouldn't do. Folks, I will tell you, you know, I don't want to just talk all day and I want to have some good guests, but it's truly hard to find people with a vision. And, um, you know, there was one person I was going to have on the show, but uh, but I saw his only criticism was we're not spending enough money. So um, we're going to go back to our go to man, Congressman Chip Roy. Hey, Congressman, thanks for joining us with such a busy schedule. Hey, Daniel, thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks to all your listeners for uh, engaging in all this. And I want to give a real big thank you to Louie Bomer for being willing to be there, 
yesterday to uh, sit there and hold. He did get a few improvements on the margins. It's not as far as I wish it had gone. But, you know, I know what it's like, as you know, to be on the floor of the house objecting in the face of the D.C. swamp and uh, pushing back. And Louie was uh, doing that for all of us. Uh, He's not doing it for his own personal gain or well-being. He's doing it for us. And I appreciate it. You know what? I want to start with that. I think you you just popped an idea in my mind. There's there's a phenomenon that I think um, our audience needs to understand that places people like you and Louie at a severe disadvantage. And that is Democrats could have the most absurd ideas. But nonetheless, if they define the problem, the scope of the problem, the contours of the problem and the solution, and there is no competing narrative from a movement or or an alternative political party of what the real problem is, what the real solutions are. So then it be and, and in fact, they actually agreed to the premise. So then it is extremely hard to be a Congressman Gomert, a Congressman Roy, and be the one man to push back against what's viewed as progress um, because nobody is pushing an alternative narrative. And this happens all the time and it underscores why we need our own narrative. Before we get to our own narrative, could you give us an update on what are the concerns to small business? Um, and I, we have a tons of small business owners in this audience. I get emails all the time. What are your concerns based on what they just passed and looks like it's going to sail through to the president's desk. Well, a number of things. Let me say one thing about what you just said uh, about, you know, the box we get placed in and we don't, we don't have leadership to push back on it. This is the problem. And, it, and, and look, we're cracking through it a bit. I, I mean, we shouldn't always be negative on this. You know, your voice, we've got other strong people out there who are conservatively talking about all these things. And we're shining a light on this disastrously broken system. What happened on Saturday morning, Friday night, is a a microcosm of the problem. Backroom deals getting cooked by the powers that be, the masters of the universe, who just come in and drop a bill on the floor of the house. No debate, no amendment, no time to read it. Force it down your throat, stick it out there, say it's gonna save the American people, and if you dare vote no, you're gonna be criticized for hating women and children and puppies and old people, and that you want everybody to die. That is the way they are legislating, and it is essentially another form of tyranny. It is a tyranny of a handful of people who are self, uh, you know, important and put in, you know, they're, they're, they're in there and they're, they're the masters of the universe making all of the decisions for us. That's what's wrong. What did we see in this bill that got pushed through? The legislation that got pushed through has numerous problems, but the biggest one is that it doesn't address the fundamental problem we have right now. We have the government of the United States using the power of the federal government rhetorically right now, but pretty soon by force of law, I think. Shutting places down. The federal government combined with governors. Governments are shutting places down. That is getting darn close to a regulatory taking. We can have a constitutional debate about that. But my point is government action is causing people to lose their livelihoods, lose profit, lose salary. So, yes, does the government have a, a role? If we think it's in the best interest of the country, we should debate that. If it's in the best interest of the country to shut down and isolate and all of that, then yes, government does have a role to step in because it's kind of like a taking. But that needs to be about liquidity. It needs to be about capital. It needs to be about massive availability of small business administration loans. We need This should often or, or entirely be paid back. We can have that debate. But we need capital in the market right now to keep businesses afloat. But instead, our losers in Washington are running around figuring out how fast they can figure out how to uh, you know, try to come up with policies that sound good, like a mandate on small businesses to cover people in the event they get sick, something we're all concerned about, right? People getting sick and they're not being able to work. But they're trying to say, we're going to mandate you cover them. Well, let me ask you this, Daniel, and all your listeners. What good does it do to have a mandate that you get sick leave if you don't have a job from which to take sick leave? <laughs> And this is the asinine thinking of your leaders in Washington. We need commerce. We need to allow the, the commercial activity to adapt, figure out how to deal with it, both on the healthcare side, which I think we'll talk about in a minute, but also on the food delivery and all of our normal daily life. We need to adapt to dealing with the current climate of trying to prevent the spread of the virus. But we need to get our economy robust and fully functioning as soon as humanly possible so that we have jobs. Because if we have a depression, that is, that is worse or, or uh, at least as bad as 
whatever we might get with the, you know, Wuhan, you know, uh, coronavirus. And so this is where we need to be thinking. No, exactly. Exactly. That's the thing. So any, anyway, what you're saying now is that they have the mandate is still there. It might be narrowed in scope for those who not everyone, but those who take leave if they have kids at home, which is rapidly becoming almost every family. Mine is certainly like that as well. So these small businesses now have a mandate on on top of them. Now they're promising tax credits on the back end which will certainly be very costly. The Joint Committee on Taxation, I be, this might have been the original version of the bill, but a hundred it's $105 billion worth. It's a pretty steep cost. But the point is that the businesses, the whole point is that they don't have business now because of the mandated shutdown or the perceived threat or the, the fear of being out in the public. So the, you know, you're a restaurant, you have a small business, you don't have the capital. So that's the whole point. How do you pay those workers if you don't have the capital? Well, right. This is, I think, the, the kind of critical choice that we have to make right now. Look, I'm not a big believer, and as you know, and you aren't, and your listeners aren't, in you know, government, you know, welfare, for lack of a better term, right? I do believe there's a role for government to step in, and it, it, particularly state and local government, if I wear my constitutional hat, to step in and help people, particularly when government action is the cause of the problem. Uh, but in this case, we have a choice to make. Are we going to say we're going to just fall back on the federal government, essentially subsidizing all workers directly because they're you know sitting at home or dealing with illness or whatever because of, the, of what we've been choosing to do policy-wise? Or are we going to try to do whatever we can to keep businesses afloat so that we can keep jobs going and uh, keep the economy uh, strong? I think it ought to be more the latter than the former, but it's probably a mix. Um, but we've got to make sure that we do not crush our economy in the name of saving ourselves from a virus when a crushed economy may well be worse, uh, both for dealing with the virus in the first place and in general, what it means for people's livelihoods. So capital, liquidity, and we need, frankly, this is an important part. We need our federal leaders and state leaders to deal with this quickly. We need to get our health care supply chain fixed. It was destroyed by our reliance on China. We need to get that up and running so we've got ventilators, we've got all the medicines we need to deal with any spread of, of the virus. But then once we've got all that in place and we've isolated and we figured out where people are, we have to just rely on our good work and faith to get our economy going again, because we can't just shut down for months on end. No, ex exactly, exactly. And and Chip, I don't know where you are in this, but I am very scared at the rapid speed this is headed, the amount of virtue signaling, the amount of shaming between each uh, you know career politician and governor and this and that. My fear is that we are one step away and in New Jersey, we're almost we're a half a step away from what they're doing in Spain and some other countries, just downright restricting movement out of your home. And what I find utterly appalling is Madison talks about in, in Federalist 45, the pyramid of government governance, how, you know, it's mainly the federal government is mainly for external um, things. And the more that it focuses on national security and external, the less it will encroach on your liberty. And to me, I find the dichotomy unbelievable. Weeks, months into this crisis, we wouldn't even shut down flights from China and Iran. And I thought we were supposed to have a travel ban from there, but that, that's aside the point. And yet we didn't do it. You want to talk about flattening a curve. Imagine if we would have done that in January. Oh, my gosh, there's so much disruption to international travel. Yeah, well, how about travel outside your doorstep? And then now we're at the point of shutting everything down. And no Republican is even pointing the finger at China in general, is even talking about the immigration travel aspect of this. In other words, you know, again, put aside my views on immigration in general, what it needs to look like, what it shouldn't, public charge culture um you know obviously the drugs and the cartels just just national security put that aside for a minute but wouldn't any sane person come out of this with some sort of legislative discussion on not just discretion because the president certainly has it unquestionably but to mandate that the president upon finding out that there is a contagious viral outbreak in a particular country to immediately cut off flights from there i mean i don't get it 
Well, I think you're raising an important uh, point in question. And I might take a slight aside for a moment to say I've had some pretty good conversations with the um, uh, some of our friends leading DHS about uh, what we need to do right now in terms of just shutting down the asylum process at our southern border. Um, there are some forces in the administration who want to do that. I think there's some forces in the administration who don't want to do that. Uh, and I think we need to do that and and even more, to your point. Um, Ooh, wait, Chip, Chip. I know, I know I threw a lot at you, but I'm going to throw a little bit more. You said yeah. something that I don't, I don't think you realize how earth shattering. Are you saying, see, I was talking about January, February. Are you saying that as of March 17th, with our entire economy shut down, with everything, you know, workplaces, schools, New Jersey, there's, there's a curfew on restaurant on, on businesses and a strongly encouraged curfew on individuals after 8 p.m. Are you telling me that people could still come to the border and ask to come in and we let them in? Yes. And that is Jeez. something that I have been working on trying to get our arms around. And like I said, there are some forces in the administration who desperately and definitely want to address that and fix it and change it. You likely know who they are. Um, yeah. And there are some forces in the administration who do not. There's a lot of people who get wrapped around the axle, right, on things like, well, we've got this you know, treaty in place and we've got this. And you and I both know that the commander in chief, the president, under our constitution and our laws, has the power to shut down whatever aspect of, of the border he wants to shut down uh, in order to uh, protect you know, our national uh, security and well-being and, and for the good of the country, the good of that. So this was the whole debate, for example, on the six or seven countries that were at the heart of the – what, what the left is called a Muslim ban, but which was really a, we don't want to have people here from terrorist countries who can't actually screen their people ban. And, and, and so this is what I think people forget. The president has the authority to do that. And right now, as you point out, we are talking about shutting down our own freedom and liberty to move about the country. We're trying to stop a virus. Incidentally, little rant here. I love how all of the court is, you know, people running around saying, oh, we need to ban straws and make sure you bring reusable stuff to all the restaurants are now saying, well, maybe right now we don't need to do that. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> Thanks. So it was apparently okay when we were talking about the flu and just normal cold. So you can have your leftist woke hippie agenda. But now it's not okay because you're scared to death about the freaking Wuhan virus. Okay. I see how it works. Well, here we sit and we're looking at the borders and we're talking about restricting our movement. And yet there's still some who don't want to say we should pretty much shut down all non-commercial uh, supply chain type activity on our borders or, or making sure our citizens can get home. I, I, Chip, to me, again, this is another lesson that Republicans and frankly, many forces in the administration won't take out either. Like, like, like you just said, I, I find it amazing. I spent an entire year and a half yelping about this point. I talk about a lot the 1948 case with Justice Robert Jackson, where the famous quote of the Bill of Rights cannot be, be allowed to become uh, a suicide pact, where we were talking about even First Amendment rights for Americans in places where this is a case in Chicago and incited a riot. And one case where there was actually a majority opinion in, in, in New York State, I believe in, in Syracuse, uh, similar, similar thing. And yet, when it came to a million people, so, so it, it took 12 months, you know this, July 2018th, Judge Sabra, Judge Dana Sabra, every, every American should know his name, Southern District of California. This man spawned a million man march from 100 countries or so. I mean, we had scabies, mumps, tuberculo tuberculosis, a lot of things, um, enterovirus, uh, acute flaccid myelitis. There's still a lot of questions about that that came in in 2014. We, nothing. For 12 months, they were saying, oh, we can't turn them back. We can't return them to Mexico. It took 12 months to stop that. Foreign nationals that never came here, never had ties to America, have no right to come here. Yet, within hours, unquestionably, you can't go here. Your business is down. You can't step out of your house. I mean, and no one even questions it. How? And then the irony of all ironies is that this very thing was engendered by a lack of use of the prudent national interest power to shut down aliens and international travel. And now and now we're I, I mean, 
my point, Chip, is who is going to open and broaden this discussion beyond food stamps, Medicaid, and bailing out some industries? I mean, I could take this like 8,000 different ways, right? Um, we, we have to, let, let me say this too, because I, I mean, we, we could go so many different directions. We need to, as conservatives, be very clear that we get that there are real human beings, and I know you believe this, real human beings who, who are going to be struggling right now, losing their jobs, not having a paycheck, figuring out how to pay their rent, figuring out how to pay for health care, who can't do it, and in significant part because of our reaction, rightly or wrongly, as a nation to dealing with the corona Wuhan virus, right? So we need to take a step back and remember that and say, okay, we're allowing this to happen one way or the other, right? We're either rightly clamping down or maybe it's an overreaction. Maybe it's not. All of those are debatable propositions, but we are clamping down in order to minimize the spread. So now what? We're going to have a whole bunch of the left who never want to let an opportunity go to waste go out and start saying this program, this thing, we need to do this to set it in stone for permanence. Same kind of thing we've had with Obamacare and everything else we've had in our yep. existence. Our job, in my belief, is to is to keep things focused very succinctly. On this is why I keep focusing like a laser on freeing up capital. You're right to focus on supply-side healthcare. How do we deregulate or move obstacles to supply-side healthcare, hospital beds, doctors, respirators, ventilators, medicine, all of the stuff that is needed. If we have all of those things, well, then we have all the care we need. How do we make sure we do that? How do we make sure we have capital and liquidity into the system? It is going to take some deficit spending. We don't have any more room for deficit spending, but we're going to have to do it. We're going to have to have some deficit spending for liquidity into the markets and the small businesses and, frankly, probably some medium to decent-sized businesses to keep the, 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 the wheels of commerce either going or ready to get going. If we focus entirely on the side of sending out, um, you know, in terms of, of, of welfare-type programs and we allow businesses to die in the meantime, then we're toast for a while because you, getting the businesses back up is going to be really hard. And I'm going to add a third element to this. Whatever we do, we've got to fix the supply-side healthcare immediately, and we need to keep the wheels of commerce greased, and we need a date. We need a point at which we're all targeting to get back into gear. I fully believe that. If I'm telling the White House anything, it's, guys, you've got a limited period of time to figure this out and get it right, and then at some point, we're going to have to just go. We've got to get back into action. You've got to get back into full swing. You've got to reopen the floodgates of commerce and everything else. And we've got to just be ready to deal with whatever healthcare curveballs we get. But we can't shut our country down. We can shut it down temporarily, briefly, to get our house in order for healthcare. But we cannot shut it down for a long time because we will just crush people. So that's the most important series of things that I think we need to be focused on. And here's the thing, Chip, ironically, the biggest, most legitimate argument for this degree, and I hope it doesn't go that step further of shutdown is because of concern that, well, maybe, you know, most people won't die, but you will have a particularly elder having to go to the hospital and there's gonna be a, a shortage of, of health care hospital beds. So my, my, my problem is the left, again, they have a tailor-made agenda of subsidies and welfare. Anything that happens, well, look, it's a time of need. You got to pay, you got to pay, you got to deficit, debt, you know, deficit spending. Okay, but where is the Republican idea of taking a look at the news cycle and how it speaks to our longstanding points? Hey, see what we mean with limiting supply and government-created monopolies. What about ending the ban on physician-owned hospitals. Can you imagine if physicians tomorrow could, could begin opening up hospitals? Um, you got you know, the whole issue with, with the limitations on, on residencies, which is really the big choke point um, in the supply of doctors, or one of them at least. But I, I don't see anyone auditing this. It's just like a virtue signaling thing of, of how we could skate by with agreeing to the Democrats or sometimes outbidding them on their things 
and their scope of the problem, but not you know, broadening the discussion. And then you, you mentioned deficit spending. Here, this is what bothers me. They want to have it always. So my view is that government exists for precisely for a time like now. Borders, national security, army, emergencies, extraordinary things beyond the scope of the civil society and private businesses and, and, and you know, the private sector. But then why don't we then have a discussion about what it is we're doing with so CDC and NIH, they both have record funding. See, uh, NIH has had about a 10 billion dollar increase, uh, which is about a quarter of its budget um, over the last mm, six years or so. Um, and it's like obesity and smoking. Well, it turns out they're spending. I mean, it should be all for things like this or mainly for things like this. So so like, where's the effort to say, all right, we're going to have to go in the hole now. But here's how we're going to reorient. Here's what we're going to offset. You know, Rand Paul has has the idea of using foreign aid to at least offset some of it. But again, there, there's no safety net there for the taxpayer. Well, which path do you want me to go now? <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, well let, let's let's talk about first the regulatory side and then let's move over to the spending. Well, look, the, 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 we talked about it in general terms a minute ago. We need to make sure that we free up the regulatory side to now allow people to go out and conquer. And by the way, we're focusing on it right now with crystal clarity on the supply side for our healthcare delivery. Because right now, people are freaking out and are saying, well, where are the ventilators? Uh, well, why don't we have the medicines that we need? Or why, why can't we get the testing kits? It's like, well, hold on. Like, right, this is part of the problem. You're starting to realize what happens when you put a stranglehold of regulation with the FDA and with the CDC and the different rules and layers of bureaucracy that have gotten in place. What you're also seeing in real time is the beauty of our federalist system that the founders structured so that you're from the bottom up, grassroots, you're getting some sort of people breaking through those bureaucratic uh, strangleholds. There was that woman who was a doctor or something out in the state of Washington pretty much just ignored all the CDC rules and went out and started performing her own tests to figure out the, the coronavirus test and kind of started breaking through it. And a lot of people started doing that and universities and state labs are working on stuff. So we had the sort of laboratories of democracy working. But you've got all these layers of bureaucracy. And it's not just Obamacare, right? You know it. You preach about it all the time on your show. It's the alphabet soup of regulation in our healthcare that goes way back all the way from the you know HMO Act or whatever it was from the early 70s and through you know Umrah and HIPAA and Tala and all of the things, all of that combined with with Obamacare and strangling the ability of businesses to be able to do what they want to do and stateside regulations as well. Like we've got all the con regulations, right? The certificate of need regulations, which gets in the way of being able to have the hospital beds that we need. Where the existing hospitals, the incumbent powers, get to determine whether a competitor can come on the market. Right. I mean, this is the kind of stuff we do, uh, and and then we wonder why we can't respond quickly to these kinds of situations. So the problem is, and this is, a, this is a tool of the left, right? They regulate and strangle things to death in the name of caring for everybody. Then they complain when that system doesn't perform well, right? It would be like going to your car and turning off six of the eight cylinders and then saying, gosh, you know what? This friggin', you know, uh, 350 engine just, it really isn't cutting it. You know, we're going to need to come in with some big government regulated. You, know, you can't do that, right? You're strangling the very thing that makes it work. Then your solution is a government run top down approach system. And then you go praise South Korea and praise all these entities. Never mind that there's some genuine questions as to how good South Korean test was, whether some of the others are working where they should. And never mind the fact that you're cutting back on the ability for the the kind of laboratories of democracy that we're allowing to work in the United States right now. Look, this is where we need to have our battle instead of what Republicans are doing right now are essentially allowing Democrats to define the playing field along like Steve Mnuchin. And uh, all of that's always going to be big government solution. So your Republican House uh, majority or not majority, but the majority of the House Republicans, sorry, voted for on Saturday morning, voted for mandates, massive mandates on small and medium-sized businesses at the exclusion of big businesses in order to say they must provide uh, you know, medical leave for those sick with coronavirus. Again, I think we should try to provide leave for people who are sick. 
but they mandated that and then come around and say, don't worry, we're making it a little better because we're going to have some tax credits and some things and you can get some cash. Don't worry about those mandates. That's your Republican current uh, thinking at work. So I, so back to the spending and the debt side, yep. you know, I, I, I think of, you know, when you have a, a road trip now, it's a little bit easier in Texas than where I am. I-95, the East Coast, you have a lot more traffic. But, you know, when you take a road trip, so and I'm not suggesting you break any laws here, but, you know, you got you kind of have to gun the engine when you can if you want to make it at the time you want to make it to your destination, because, you know, you're going to have areas in some of the urban areas where you're going to be slowed down with traffic to varying degrees. And and to me, both in terms of spending and economic growth, it's a similar thing. We're going to have rough times. We're going to have recessions. We're going to have shocks to the system like 9-11 and this. You're going to have lesser shocks to the system. You're going to have hurricanes and natural, natural disasters. And government is most needed in the latter times. And that's when it's going to be the most costly. But you would think we would utilize the plethora of good times to cut, both cut spending and spawn economic growth. And then and, and you orient more of our spending towards the core vital emergency stuff. But what's happening is they're double dipping. We have record spending upon record spending, as we saw the last several years during one of the best job markets post-World War II. Right. It's not like, you know, 2008, 2009, we had 3.5% unemployment, yet Republicans with all three branches wouldn't have welfare reform. They wouldn't push welfare reform. So now, oh, well, now well, what you can do, Daniel, you got to fund it. Same thing. There's a hurricane, but we fund all this stuff with record funding. We don't know what happens to it. And then every time, I'm not talking about like an extraordinary hurricane season, but every natural disaster, we don't have money. Uh, Puerto Rico, now they, they need money too. We passed that. They're double and triple dipping. And then, you know, each time no one wants to look like they don't care about the crisis. But don't we need a systemic effort to at least get a handle on what we do and our spending priorities as a at a base level so that when we have the emergencies, it doesn't blow us out of the water? Yes. I mean, look, this is part of the problem. You and I have been screaming about fiscal responsibility for a long time and uh, trying to encourage people to actually do something when we had a strong economy and we're still mounting up a trillion dollar a year deficits. I mean, I don't know how much I could be saying more about that during my brief year and change in Congress. Um, but what we've got to do right now is have a serious conversation about, you know, priorities, but, but, but I'm, I'm going to tell you right now, it's not going to happen because <laughs> Republicans in Congress aren't going to sit there and say, look, we're 100% on board with injecting liquidity in the system, and it's going to probably have to be a mountain of money uh, in order to get through, again, all of these government-mandated restrictions. But they're not going to say, however, we're going to do an across-the-board cut of 10% of standard government you know, programs or ask them to tighten the belts or eliminate this you – know, unnecessary program or anything else. They're not going to do anything like that to go try to have some sort of fiscal responsibility on this. They're just going to go write big checks. And so our responsibility, I mean, like I'm telling you, I, I don't see any way they're not, that that's not going to be the way it's going to be. And so yeah. our job is going to be, my, my opinion, our single objective right now is to get them to spend whatever money they're going to spend wisely. And is with the most direct, uh, response and positive response for the American cons uh, consumer, business owner, person, et cetera. We've got to make sure that whatever they spend, it's actually going to make a difference in getting us through a hopeful small bump, you know, kind of deep like recession for a quarter type thing, and then get turned back around and get the nose to the plane and then grow it right out of it, right? That's got to be our goal. If, if we don't do that, then, you know, woe to us. <clears throat> No, I mean that that's definitely true on 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 the fiscal end and and like I'm saying even if the fiscal end they don't have courage but at least what the democrats are doing on the spending at least we should be able to say hey well we need the regulatory relief with it. Yeah. And then finally I just want to come back to immigration. It it is shocking to me. I mean this is really it, it ties together national security, healthcare concerns, everything imaginable. With, with the whole China issue. So um, last year, late last year, November or so, 
uh, bipartisan Senate Homeland Security subcommittee uh, with uh, Senator Portman and Carper put out a report noting that there are 10,000 Chinese nationals conducting research in our Department of Energy national labs. Uh, they point out that um, the National Institutes of Health and the State Department do not systemically track visa applicants linked to China's talent recruitment plans. That's their Thousand Talents program, basically their espionage program that's well known. Um, they conclude that American taxpayer-funded research has contributed to China's global rise over the last 20 years because it allowed China to go, quote, from brain drain to brain gain. Now, how did that happen? Well, it starts with the student pipeline. We have 400,000 Chinese foreign students in this country. It's a double entendre because on the one hand, that's one of the many conduits to get in diseases into the country, which it seems like China seems to be the culprit for a lot of the most recent outbreaks, the viral outbreaks at least. And, and then on the other hand, then our ability to deal with it is screwed because of the sucking sound of them getting all our technology, then they go overseas. See, the outsourcing wasn't natural. It flowed from our immigration policies. And then now they have the expertise there. Then our companies go there. I mean, this is the issue of our time. And yet I'm not hearing a single thing to deal with this. Let me ask you, Chip, come September, the next semester, are we going to have 400,000 Chinese fly back and forth? Well, it sure would seem unlikely that the current leadership in Washington would do anything to review from top to bottom our entire uh, visa process and, and, and kind of think through all that, that it means for our nation and our sovereignty and our security, despite a lot of the troubling things we see occurring. Um, and look, we, we got we to be honest, Daniel, some of our friends on the right who are slave to free trade. And I'm a free trader and you're a free trader. We like to have lowest, you know, uh, low price goods because we've got marginal utility in different company, different countries are better at making different things. I'm, I'm for those things. But we have got to stop intertwining our core national security interests yep. with other countries. Um, you know, we need to have good manufacturing jobs in the United States. We need to have good, um, you know, supply chains here. And that includes clamping down, as you're saying, on some of the clearly disastrous immigration policies we've had in the past that has been so slave to cheaper labor or labor supply because the Chamber of Commerce and all of the cronies in Washington want to be able to say they've got that, instead of focusing also intently on our national security. This has nothing to do with where people are coming from, by the way, or you know, you know, their exactly. ethnicity or color of their skin or anything. I don't care makes no difference to me. I just want to make sure that people who are coming here are coming here because they love America, because they want to fight to have a better way of life in America. And I want to make sure that we're preserving and protecting our republic and making sure that we've got the ability to maintain our own supply chains, our own national security. You know, I know we can produce food in this country. I know that we can produce, um, you know, some of the pieces of our national security because we've had laws in place to try to protect that. But some of our national security is being outsourced. Heck, there's some screens in our fighter jets that I think are being made only in China. I'm not positive, but there's some of these rare earth materials and things where we're very fully and wholly dependent on China. We've got to break apart from some of this and make sure that no one country has such an outsized influence on our well-being as a nation. And that's really a terrific point. There are three stools. There's there's economics, there's culture, and there's national security. Yep. And, you know, often, more often than not, you could achieve all three together. But there are times where they come into conflict, and it doesn't disprove the veracity of one. It's just you got to take into account. So, so for example, let's say Al-Qaeda finds a way to really grow cheap sugarcane or something. Well, I don't disagree that economically it would be better to do business with them, but dude, like some things you just can't do. And you right. know, most Chinese people I've known are terrific people, um, people of Chinese uh, background, but but um, the Chinese government, I mean, every American Democrat, Republican knows this. They're evil as anything on all fronts. They're trying to destroy us with asymmetrical warfare. So you, you got to factor that in. And it's, it's the same thing we're dealing with on our southern border. I don't disagree with the economics that if you have um, some sort of mechanism of finding the absolute cheapest labor you could ever find on the face of the planet to, to go pick tomatoes in your field, you'll have cheaper tomatoes. I don't disagree with that. But, dude, when you become a, a 
as AP had a great report on this, a conduit for CJNG cartel in our rural communities because of that. When you bring in the crime, some of the cultural problems and, you know, it's just not natural. That's not what Adam Smith calls the natural order of things. What you would do for a country, for its security, for its um well-being you got to take that all into account and my point is i was always against draconian anti-outsourcing type of legislation but the thing is a lot of the people pushing it were the people who created the problem because the way in my view the outsourcing started was not natural it was the universities that completely had a monopoly on lobbying and just supplanting. I mean, you go to some universities, it's all foreign students. Well, you know, it's nice to have a little bit of an assortment, but dude, I mean, 1.3 million foreign students and it's tripled over the last two decades. I mean, come on. Um, nobody is asking these questions. And again, um, remember, we could debate how much crime is brought in because obviously it's tougher to gauge because certainly a lot of Americans commit crime. But when it comes to some of these diseases, we know uh, with certainty, they emanated from a particular place. They didn't. It wasn't natural to hear. It has to be brought in. I'm not going to tell you, Chip, or anyone else that we could have prevented every last case. But dude, talk about flattening the curve. If we would have had a much less invasive but still disruptive um, international travel ban in January, you got to wonder what that curve would look like now. Yeah, I mean, look, um, that's a hundred percent correct. And you know, I I look at it this way. You know, the president, uh, and I could go a different number of different ways with this, but the president made a tough call. Look, I mean, I disagree with the administration on a lot of different things. I agree with the administration on a lot of different things, uh, and I'm not afraid to say it when I do. But in both directions, but the president um, has done some good things, shutting down China. One might have argued uh, that we should have done it sooner. One might have argued that we should have been faster to uh, shut down certain other areas. I mean, it took a lot of grief from, from shutting down continental Europe. Um, but meanwhile, Canada was sitting there going, oh, no, 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 you know, those xenophobic jackasses in America, you know, we're, we're going to keep our borders open. Now they're shutting down. And I'm sort of going, okay, but are we shutting down with Canada? Because they were letting people in Canada, right? I mean, this is the kind of stuff that, you know, that, that people forget that in this interconnected world, we've got to be paying attention to and making sure that we, we are doing the right thing. But again, I think we need to go a lot further in uh, right now. We should be shutting down asylum claims at our southern border. We should be making very clear. We should operationalize a lot harder and faster, uh, getting full control of our border right now. You know, uh, if this isn't about also using a crisis to know this is because we need to do it right now. And uh, this whole business that Mexico doesn't have coronavirus. I don't know if that's true or not, but they're gonna. So whatever is going to happen in Mexico, Central America, and, and, and throughout uh, South America, it's going to happen. And we're going to need to be able to deal with it. And DHS needs to be on top of it. The president does too right now. Sure. And, and as always, I mean, you go to the Texas Department of Public Health uh, website, you'll see mumps and tuberculosis are endemic of Texas more than any other state. And they say it's from the migrant population. I mean, so there's other issues, too, that we've eradicated diseases. You know, when I was a kid, tuberculosis was gone. I mean, I think they were still testing, but then, you know, they stopped because it was gone. And then, you know, we, we reversed it 10 years later. And and this is the thing to me, it is shocking, shocking the amount of open source and government reports details on the public health crisis. I'm not saying it was as severe as this, but the public health crisis last year. And it's like. We couldn't even I mean, we, we couldn't even turn them back. It just it just shocked me that, you know, if I didn't know any better and I came from Mars, I would say the right to immigrate is it trumps every single thing. And and it just it, it boggles the mind that we don't have an equal and opposing force to make forceful arguments as to. What are the public policy problems that engendered this problem and other things? What are exacerbating it? How do we inoculate ourselves in the future from these problems? And to me, if we're going to have bipartisanship, at least if we're going to get all their spending, we should get our policy priorities as well. Any closing thoughts before we sew up? 
No, I mean, look, it, it's well said. Here, here are my closing thoughts on this particular moment in time in history in Corona. Number one, we need to get full control of our borders and stop the flow of people coming in and out as much as humanly possible while we maintain whatever we need for commerce in order to have the goods and services we need. Number two, we need to, yes, slow down right now at this instant our social engagement and interaction and make sure that we're not spreading the virus. But importantly, number three, we've got to keep the wheels of commerce going. We need liquidity, cash, capital loans from the government right now because the government is responsible for causing some of this problem. Number four, though, we need to have a date certain or a time at which we're targeting to get full function, functional uh, uh, full functioning back so that our economy is roaring and coming out strong. We've got to do these things because we cannot freeze our ability to have our commerce continue to go. Otherwise, we're going to be uh, stuck in a world of, hurt, uh, world of hurt for a while. So this is where I think we need to head, and we don't need more of these political games coming out of D.C. where we don't even read the damn bills. There you have it, folks. That was Congressman Chip Roy. If you have any questions for him, email me at dhorowitz at blazemedia.com. Until tomorrow, God bless y'all. May God keep us safe.